Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day, folks. Thanks for listening. Now, coming up this week, we've got one of those more interesting days of the year, haven't we, Paul? We certainly have, Mikey. It's going to be April the 1st, April Fool's. So we want to have a bit of a look right now at, well, the origins of April Fool's Day. Well, that's right, Mikey, because as you can imagine, there's several theories, and probably the most popular one is that it's all connected to the Gregorian calendar, which we were talking about back in my Macclesfield uh, episode. Because, of course, the introduction of that new calendar shifted New Year's Day from tying in with the spring equinox to the more obvious first day of the year, January the 1st. And a lot of people think April Fool's is when different people would mock, you know, they're they're a bit slow on the uptake or stubbornly refused to change the New Year's Day and still thought that April the 1st was the beginning of the year. But actually, Mikey, that is not true. Now, Now, yes, Pope Gregory did change the calendar in 1582 and did change New Year's Day, although, of course, it wasn't really him who was doing it. It was actually the great Italian scientist and astronomer Aloysius Lilius. But anyway, the idea was they all wanted to standardise what was happening in Christendom because a lot of things have been getting out of sync, particularly Easter, which, of course, is the church's most holy day of the year. Now, back in 325 AD at the Council of Nicosia, when they tried to organise the original Easter Sunday, They deliberately chose that Sunday that would tie in with the spring equinox. But as we were saying in that earlier episode, because the Julian calendar was not actually quite precise enough, a lot of dates in the calendar drifted from the natural order of things. So Gregory and this Aloysius guy, they're trying to put everything back together. They drop 10 days out of the calendar and they move New Year's Day back to January the 1st. But the date they moved it from, Mikey, was not... April the 1st, it wasn't April Fool's Day at all. The original New Year's Day was March the 25th. Oh, we were talking about that because all the rents were due in England on the 25th. Exactly, yeah. It's also known as Lady Day in honour of Virgin Mary. And that was the day that had been chosen by the Council of Nicosia. That was the original Easter Sunday. See, this makes sense, mate, because I found a Dutch poem from 1561. That's 21 years before the change in the calendar. Yeah. And it describes a master sending his servant on various fool's errands. Like, the same thing they do with apprentices these days. Mm. Like, find a left-handed hammer and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But they say in the poem that this day occurs on April the 1st. Right. Which I think makes it sort of tie in with like quite a long-running idea of of tomfoolery and japery around about springtime. Well, that's it. Yeah, even as far back as the ancient Romans, isn't it, Mikey, with their festival of Hilaria, yeah, the old joyful festival. All the peoples, whether high or low, they enjoyed celebrating the coming of spring. That's right, mate. And in that festival of Hilaria, quite often the common people would dress up and mock f- figures of authority like you know, um, magistrates or you know, local leaders. Mm. And that might even go back to the ancient Egyptians. Right, because it's all over the Mediterranean world, isn't it really, Mikey? Man, it's all over Europe. In fact, by the Renaissance in France, that's where we get the tradition of people putting paper fish on the backs of people on April Fool's Day. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, you're going to make fun of my French here. They are called the Poisson d'Avril. Ah, yeah, the fish of April. Yes, which means they are, they are guileless, young, and easily caught. Trade old, Frenchie. Trade old. <laughs> That's right, Mikey. It's in France, it's in Germany, it's in Italy. Yeah, but I've got to give it to you, Paulie. You Brits do it best, mm. and particularly up in Scotland. Right. By the 18th century, there's a dake on April 1st, mm. which is known as... Hunting the Gork Day. Now, Gork is an old Scottish term for a cuckoo. Ah, right, cuckoo, of course, yeah, because that's always been associated with the gullible people, hasn't it? Yeah, as in cuckold and that kind of thing. Yeah, indeed. Now, this day is a little bit like the Dutch one as well. It involves sending a subordinate on a quest to find non-existent goods and you know, non-existent objects, sky right. hooks, all that sort of stuff. You know. But on Hunting the Gork Day... This poor subordinate has to carry a letter around with them, especially sealed letters. They race around town and they deliver it to, I'm assuming, friends of the naughty boss. Yes. So as he arrives at a location on the fool's errand, mm. he hands it to whoever the master is there. The master opens the letter and then reads to him, Dinny laugh, dinny smile, hunt the gawk another mile, and then sends him off on another fool's errand. <laughs> it's pretty cruel, but you've got to admit, it's pretty clever. Mind you, though, I think it's topped. By what happens on the next day. Right. The April, what, April the 2nd? April the 2nd in Scotland for years was known as Taily Day. On Taily Day, you had to sneak up behind someone and pin this note on their back. Kick me hard for I am soft. <laughs> That's the old sort of kick me sign, I suppose, which is still going on to this day. That's right, mate. But we can't just laugh off the whole tradition completely. Over the years, there have been a few far more serious incidents. Probably my favourite is. In 1683, the Treaty of Warsaw, which was an anti-Islamic pact between Poland and the Holy Roman Empire, mm. it was signed on April the 1st, but artificially backdated to March the 31st, just so no one would think it was a prank. Welcome back, folks. So today we're talking about April Fool's Day. Now, we've already established that it goes way back further than the introduction of the Gregorian calendar. It yes. goes back for centuries. But as we said before the break, you know, when it comes to April Fool's Day, you Brits are the leaders. And in fact, one of my favourite stories involves one of the greatest landmarks of Britain, which has been around for centuries. It involves the Tower of London and people watching the lions being washed. The lions? Yes, mate. Well, you have to remember, there has been a menagerie at the Tower of London for centuries. Oh, that's right, Mikey. Because, of course, yeah, the Tower of London was originally the White Tower, wasn't it, built by the Normans. And ever since the 13th century, kings and queens would often keep exotic animals in a kind of petting zoo. Yes, mate. In fact, there was one German traveller who wrote on seeing Elizabeth I's menagerie at the Tower. It contained three lionesses, one lion called Edward VI, <laughs> after her little brother, mm -hmm. who died, a tiger, a lynx, a porcupine and even an eagle. Yes, right. Well, of course, that's right, isn't it, Mikey? Because whenever a great explorer would go off to new and distant lands, it would be an exotic animal or bird that they brought back and presented to the king and queen. Yes, you're right, mate. And those animals were actually the props for what became one of the best practical jokes ever played on the British public. That's one of the first times, too, where an institution or a group of elites played a trick on the general public. Mm. Now, we, we know this because on April the 2nd, 1698, Dork's newsletter, which was a periodical that went around London town, reported this. Yesterday being the 1st of April, 
several persons were sent to the tower ditch to see the lions washed. Right, and that's 1698. Yeah, but it probably goes back even further than that, and it keeps going. It even gets mentioned in Travels of Tom Thumb over England and Wales in 1746. Ah, Tom Thumb. Now, you should mention here that Tom Thumb's not like the cartoon character we grew up with. Mm. Tom Thumb's a folklore character that goes back centuries. Right. But these particular tales of Tom Thumb were published in 1746, and it includes this paragraph. You wackish people report that those lions wash themselves once a year in the Tower Ditch. And I must own, I went to see them the 1st of April, 12 month, before I set out on my travels, but was laughed at heartily for my trouble. So, so what you say, Mike, is that people were sent to the Tower of London with the expectation that they'd see the royal lions being washed in the ditch or what I suppose would be the moat. Exactly, mate. And it keeps going, even like decades after the animals have actually left the Tower of London. Right. And this sort of explains how it works. We have this from 1848, a guy called Gustav Louise Morris. Strauss. He wrote a book called Reminiscences of an Old Bohemian. He talks about, in the last days of March 1848, the proprietor of Chat, one of those London periodicals, Mm. in conjunction with the editor of Pond, another popular periodical, Mm. contrived to perpetrate a vile hoax on Her Majesty's lieges. These wretched conspirators had a great number of order cards printed admitting bearer and friends to the White Tower on the first day of April to witness, if they so listed, the famous grand annual ceremony of the washing of the lions. (laughs) So even in the 19th century, people were still falling for it. Mate, Gustav continues. We went down to Tower Hill in the morning of the 1st of April to watch the result. I must confess, I for one was not prepared for the extraordinary credulity of the British public. They flocked up in shoals to see the lions washed. The warders were almost at their wits' end. They had bits of pasteboard, placards, Mm. flourished in their faces with (laughs) angry gestures and angrier imprecations. I think they were shouting insults. By the indignant crowd of sightseers and seekers. Yes. I verily believe that there was a motion at one time of the day to send for reinforcements of the garrison. So threatening was the aspect of the British public raging at the gates of the old city fortress. Roar! Who's a pusscat? All right, folks, so here we are. We're talking about April the 1st, talking about April Fool's. As Mikey was explaining, some of these traditions go back for centuries, but of course they're also still very much alive today, aren't they? I know when I was growing up in the UK, particularly the the newspapers, they'd take it in turns to run these spoof stories to try and trick their readers. And I know my favourite one year was the discovery of a new animal like a yeti called Lerpaloof. Mate, what's a Lerpaloof? Well, it's supposed to be this animal, right? But of course, Lerpaloof... April Fool's backwards. And that's why I don't play word games. <laughs> but actually, Maggie, you've got an even better one. It's before my time, and it was before yours, but it is the BBC back in Britain. Yes, but it's April the 1st, 1957. Now, we've all heard of the venerable BBC programme, Panorama. Yeah, they're great, great current affairs. Yeah, famous around the world. In fact, so much so that we even heard about this one in Australia. This happened on April the 1st, 1957, and it's gone down in history as the now infamous Swiss Spaghetti Harvest. Spaghetti Harvest? <laughs> yes, mate. Now, the presenter was the respected, I'm, I'm certain you've heard of this guy, respected journalist and personality, Richard Dimbleby. Yeah, of course, one of the Dimbleby brothers. And they were showing clips of, of local Swiss women harvesting cooked strands of pasta from trees. Now, as this footage is going, I'm going to read you what Dimbleby was reading out. <laughs> 
It is not only in Britain that spring this year has taken everyone by surprise. Here in Ticino, on the borders of Switzerland and Italy, the slopes overlooking Lake Laguno have already burst into flower a fortnight earlier than usual. <laughs> the past winter, one of the mildest in living memory, has had its effect in other ways as well. Most important of all, it's resulted in an exceptionally heavy spaghetti crop. No way. It gets, it gets more ridiculous. The last two days of March are an anxious time for the spaghetti farmer. <laughs> There's always a chance of a late frost, which, while not entirely ruining the crop, generally impairs the flavour and makes it difficult to obtain top prices in world markets. But now these dangers are over and the spaghetti harvest goes forward. Wow. Once again, cut the shots of women taking limp spaghetti off trees. <laughs> but then he gets specific. Spaghetti cultivation here in Switzerland is not, of course, carried out on anything like the tremendous scale of the Italian industry. <laughs> Many of you, I am sure, will have seen pictures of the vast spaghetti plantations in the Po Valley. Oof. For the Swiss, however, it tends to be a more family affair. <laughs> yeah, you can just imagine, you know, 50s Britons sitting at home watching it on the TV on the sofas. And, mate, that's the point. It's 1950s Britain. I remember Rick Stein on one of his programs saying that when Italian restaurants opened in London in the 60s, these new Italian restaurants, they had to put signs at the front, yes, we serve spaghetti, but not on toast. <laughs> I mean, seriously, to 1950s Britain, pasta was a really exotic dish. Mm. Anyway, Richard Dimbleby continues. After picking, the spaghetti is laid out to dry in the warm alpine air. Many people are puzzled by the fact that their spaghetti is produced in such uniform lengths. <laughs> this is the result of many years of patient endeavour by plant breeders who succeeded in producing the perfect spaghetti. Just to fit in the box. Just to fit in the box, exactly, mate. They've covered every angle. Mm. But now they cut to an interior scene of a restaurant. Right. Now the harvest is marked by a traditional meal. Toast to the new crop and drunk in these bocciolinos. And then the waiters enter bearing the ceremonial dish. This is, of course, spaghetti. Spaghetti, of course. Yeah, picked earlier in the day, dried in the sun, and so brought fresh from the garden to table at the very peak of condition. <laughs> For those who love this dish, there is nothing like real homegrown spaghetti. Oh. Dimbleby then signs off with, now we say goodnight to you on this, the first day of April. Wow, so they really fell for it. Mate, they lapped it up with a ladle. The BBC switchboard was inundated with calls. Some were in on the gag, mm. but a lot weren't. And they were asking where they could purchase or even grow their own spaghetti bush. There were so many people inquiring about this that the telephone operators actually yeah. settled on the simple response of, place a sprig of spaghetti in a tin of tomato sauce <laughs> and hope for the best. <laughs> But, Paulie, it wasn't just the fish and chip pasta-eating general public that were taken in. In fact, the Director General of the BBC, a guy called Sir Ian Jacob... The Director General? Yeah, mate, he'd missed the memo that had been sent around warning about the spoof. <laughs> and, and he later confessed that he and his wife had consulted no less an authority than the Encyclopedia Britannica to verify the facts of the oh, broadcast. Oh. Hang on, Mikey, if the Director General didn't know about it, who came up with the idea? Well, actually, we know about this because the Director General, Sir Ian Jacob, called a meeting the next day. <laughs> right. And that's where he was talking to the producer, Charles de Jaeger. Mm. Now, de Jaeger was telling the story that he was a schoolboy in Vienna mm. and his teacher would complain to them, boys, you are so stupid, you'd believe me if I told you that spaghetti grows on trees. Ah. 
I must admit, I love that story. What about the press, Mikey? What was their reaction? Well, on the whole, the UK press were vastly amused by the whole thing. But there were a few stick of the muds. A few journalists remonstrated the BBC for playing an April Fool's prank well after the so-called official cut-off time of midday. Oh, right, yeah, of course, the old noon cut-off. Do you have that over here? Because in England, it's, you're not allowed to play any pranks after 12 o'clock. Well, it's funny you should ask that, Paulie, because I always just thought it was my parents who made it up just to stop us from being idiots after midday. Yeah. But actually, Paulie, it, it seems to date back to a particularly British convention that goes all the way back to the Restoration. Oh, what, with Charles II? Yes, mate, Shig Shag Day. <laughs> also, Shig Shack Day. Mm. Now, this is May the 29th, and it, it celebrates Charles II coming back on the throne. Mm-hmm. Now, it's where supporters of Charles wear oak sprigs in their hats. To- ah, to commemorate young Charles hiding in the oak tree, of course. That's right, and those who failed to do so could only be mocked before the clock struck noon. And so April Fool's Day must have borrowed it ever since. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. So next week, we thought with everything going on in Eastern Europe at the moment, this might be a timely occasion to revisit something that's become a bit of a collector's piece, our Berlin Wall episode. Mm-hmm.